This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Talking Business Now. I'm your host, Kelly Scanlon. Thank you for joining us. We're talking business now with Lee Carraher, the CEO of Double Forte PR and Digital Marketing, a national agency that's headquartered in San Francisco. She's the author of two books. The first is Millennials and Management, based on her experience with epically failing and then <laughs> succeeding at retaining millennials in her business. Her second book, The Boomerang Principle, Inspiring Lifetime Loyalty, from employees is also about creating workplace cultures. In this episode of Talking Business Now, Lee talks with us about building a multi-generational workplace culture that succeeds. Welcome, Lee. Kelly, thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be on your show. What a relevant topic. How many generations <laughs> do we have in the workforce right now? I, Today, I the, five. Five, yes. It's what five. I, that's the most that of any period. Ever. Yeah, yeah, ever in history. And, you know, generations are in general between 15 and 20 years after 1880. So, yeah. There's a lot we can learn from each other. But so every, much. But every generation is different. And because of that, workplace conflicts are bound to arise. And it puts a lot of pressure on businesses. I mean, you experienced yourself, as I said in the introduction, your own experience was that until you learned to work with millennials, it nearly killed your business. Talk to us a little bit about what that experience was like and, and what you finally did to turn things around. Yeah. So my, you know, before I started my own company in 2002, I ran two very large organizations, one for an international uh, media firm, and I had over 700 people, and one for Sega of America, a video game company, and I had over 600 people. And most of the people were under 30 that I was, you know, were in my organizations, particularly in the video game space. And so I was known for being good with people under 30. From 99 to 2001, when it was a Gen X, you couldn't find enough Gen Xers because it is the smallest generation. And that's another thing to talk about. The whole thing around entitlement, you know, this is not new. People, we talk about millennials and Gen Z being entitled. This is not new right? We talked about every generation talks is, is talked about as being entitled. Anyway, so I have a degree in medieval history. That's a thousand years of intergenerational conflict. This is not a new topic, <laughs> right? <laughs> so when I, in my, when I started my company in 2002, it was in the downturn here in San Francisco from the NASDAQ implosion. And it was not that hard to find people with 10 years of experience. In fact, I only hired people with 10 years of experience for the first six years seven years actually of the company, which made many things easier because I didn't have to like train people to show up. They just came to work and you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And they knew how to do what they were doing. They, I did think that they were, didn't need to be led. And that was a, a mistake. Everyone needs to be led. And then in the implosion of 2008, 2009, when everything shifted in our country, it was clear when you get to a, a business, when a business gets to that kind of financial 
impact. So there was no business that wasn't impacted. You really need to examine your business model because probably the business model that got you to that point of what implosion, and it could be on a small level, just, just your company. It could be on an international level, just like the 2008 implosion was, is not going to be the business model that you take out of there to succeed. Right. You have to look at your business model. So our business model had been predicated on only hiring people with 10 years of experience. Those are very expensive bodies. And then I also realized when I was doing that was that we were going to have a donut hole. There was almost no one who had 10 years of experience, who actually had eight or nine years of experience in 2008, in 2009 in, our, in San Francisco, because really no one got hired in between 2000 and 2004 in public relations in San Francisco. So we were gonna hit a donut hole of the people who would be the least qualified to work for me. And you always wanna be bringing people in from the bottom at your least qualified position so you can grow your own, right? right? So I started looking at all these factors and I was like, oh God, that's a high overhead. We're gonna run out of people to hire. And there's going to be a pressure on our business to deliver more for less. That's going to happen. So we better change our model. And the the biggest change we could make was to bring in entry-level people, right? So we we can't lower the cost of business, meaning we can't lower the fact that our clients are going to have less money to spend. We could lower our cost of work, meaning our cost of COG, you know, COGS, based on time, right? And that would be people. So the only way to do that was either to cut salaries in half, or to hire people who had less experience and then start growing our own. And because of that donut hole, it made more sense to hire people at the lower level. This was not something I even thought about. I was like, okay, well, let's do that. And I had been so successful at it before in two other organizations. People actually you know, wanted to be in my organizations. I, didn't, I literally thought nothing of it. And yeah, it didn't work so well, <laughs> Kelly. <laughs> so our first, the first millennial we hired... Uh, the first one, she brought her dog to work the first day and she left at three o'clock that day and didn't come in the second day. And, you know, I was like, what just happened? Yeah. And I came to work late that first, that her first day, uh, I was at a meeting and I came in and there was a dog and I was like, what's this dog doing here? Oh, oh, that's uh, the new person's dog. I'm like, well, did we know the dog was coming? No. Did she ask if she could bring the dog? Is anyone allergic to dogs? I mean, come on people. <laughs> right. And, and she didn't just bring the dog, Kelly. She brought a water filtration system. She brought a dog bed. There was kibble. Oh my goodness. Everything. Oh, yeah. She was moving the dog in, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and no, that's, no one was allergic to dogs, thank God. And the dog had a red vest. It was a service dog. It was a chihuahua. So, so in my brain, I was like, that's not a service dog. That's a chihuahua, right? But you can't ask them to leave. We've got the red vest, all that kind of stuff. And I was like, what the heck just happened? And and I call some friends who also ran agencies. I'm like, this just happened. She, and my friend said, oh my God, Lee, you didn't just hire millennials, did you? I'm like, what's a millennial? I have no idea what you're talking about. Anyway, they're terrible. I mean, the drama was so high. I was like, they can't be terrible. What are you talking about? Anyway, then I find out that she left early that day because she had to go to San Diego to meet her mom. I said, did we know she was going to San Diego? Did she ask if she could leave early? What do you mean she's not coming in tomorrow? I mean, it was just like, oh my gosh, alternate universe. So we got that straight. You know, it was one person. We, can, we got that all straightened out. And she ended up being one of our highest performing employees ever right? And we're still in good contact and we refer business business to each other. And then I hired six millennials about, I don't know. And when I say I, my organization hired six millennials within about six or seven weeks of each other. And within three months, they were all gone. hundred oh, no. percent failure. And one person we walked 
and five left of their own accord within three months. I've never had a hundred percent failure in right. you, you, retention you've ever. Had, you've had workplace cultures where people want to work for you. Want to work with hundreds of people, people trying to get into my organizations. I never had a hundred percent failure. But for your own business, you couldn't find six. Oh my God. Well, I found them. I couldn't keep them. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So finding them, I was like, well, we, I know we didn't hire the wrong people because we we're good at that. We're really good at that. It must be us. It's got to be us. Like, what are we doing wrong that these people feel they have to leave after such a short period of time? Probably because it was so, it was that all those people at the same time, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. if it had been like a drip, 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 I might not have felt it. So, but it, it was a body blow, frankly. I was like, what? I mean, literally reeling. But and it was a wake up call though. Totally. It was a body blow. Oh my gosh. I was like, oh, to the gut. I was like, oh my gosh, everything I know is wrong. And that's how I really felt. And so I started doing some research. And again, I was like, no, our recruiting is good. Our recruiting is stellar. I'm not going to worry about the recruiting. It's got to be us. And what are we doing when people get here that is not keeping them here, not inspiring them, not giving them confidence to stay in the company? And then I started doing a lot of research and I learned more about millennials because I thought they were Gen Y, but now they're millennials, you know, what's all this stuff. And everything is, was at that time was so negative, right? It's 80 million people. Everything was negative. 80 million people can't be entitled. It's statistically impossible. Right. Right. Really wrong. Right. So I did interviews with people and then by trial and error, I figured out what we needed to do to keep these people in the company. And it shifted our culture, not from intention, but from application, right? Our intention was always to be a great place to work. Being a great place to work with Gen Y or millennials and now Gen Z is, it means you have to do different things that Gen X and boomers would not have anticipated or would never have expected. Right. So uh, by trial and error, we figured it out. Uh, and I had set some KPIs on that. So in San Francisco at that time, the average tenure for someone under 30 was 13 to 14 months. And that's just a killer on a business, right? You, that kind of churn, you know, you might expect it in a coffee shop or at a restaurant in a, in a white collar business that is just the death knell of profit, right? Absolutely. So my goal was, okay, we're going to crack this nut and we're just going to double it. We're going to be two times as better, better in retention than any other agency, any other at this level, right? So that would have been 26, like two years, a little more, between two and three years. And, and today our average tenure for someone under 30 is about four and a half to five years. And our average tenure for somebody over 30 is seven to 10 years, depending on when they started. So I am extremely proud of, and it's always hard when people leave, but they, people shouldn't stay here for their whole lives unless they're 60, right? So, <laughs> so, and so basically, so from our, our own, just running my business, figuring that out is where um, at the same time, our clients were in the communication business. were having the same problem that we were right? And in, in my role in our clients, Republic Relations, Social Media, Digital Farm, I work in general with CMOs, Chief Executive Officers, and on communication that's internal and external. And they were having the same problems that we were at the company. And because we're a smaller company, I was able to do a lot more things faster than they could. And I started advising them and helping them doing those kinds of things too. And they were like, Lee, why don't you write a book? I'm like, I don't know. No one wants to hear what I have to say. Uh, and then a publisher showed up and said, we want you to write this book. And I was like, I'm writing a book had always been a goal of mine. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so, 
it has been for us, for me as an, uh, as a leader, it's been one of the most gratifying things because as a leader who always is looking for new things and wants to make a big impact on the world through my little company, it's hard to do, but through the book, I can help people one at a time. And even just this week, I got an email from someone, um, a brigadier general I spoke, I worked with at the Pentagon a few years ago who has since retired. And she said she had just bought 20 copies of my first book and 40 copies of my second book because um, she found it so impactful. And I hadn't talked to her in years. So I'm glad that it's having some sort of positive impact in the workplace. Coming from your own experience, obviously yeah. you did research too, because you had to do the research in order to incorporate these principles in your own company before you ever wrote the book. So, so based on your research and then living and practical, it, yeah, and, yes, and almost coming to ruin in your company. Oh these, yeah, these two books are produced again: Lee Carraher, uh, Millennials and Management, the first one, and her second one, The Boomerang Principle. Kelly, what you're talking about is practical experience. And I think that is what's most valuable to me. You know, as I was a EO member for many years, entrepreneurs organization member, Mm -hmm. and it's all the gestalt of actually living through the experience. And, you know, as a consultant in the PR firm world where we actually are very practical, we don't just advise, we actually do. And that's my visceral reaction to all the reading I was doing on how negative it was. It was all consultants talking about how terrible it is, you know, reporters, you know, not that they don't have valuable work, and it's valuable jobs. But if you're not running something and actually doing something to figure it out, consultants don't have any skin in the game. I had skin in this game. My my livelihood is attached to this business. If I don't find profit, I can't help my family. So I really wanted to share my experience. It was strictly my experience. I didn't share any of the client advising we had done at all on this topic. So you you have all this experience. I alluded in the introduction that it's very important that when you have multi-generations in the workforce, that you're able to work together because everybody has so much to offer. So often though, it leads to conflict. But Mm -hmm. why is, talk uh, more specifically about why understanding how the different generations work is so important to running a business today. Well, I think there's, and it's probably true that today and then tomorrow will be even more important, right? Is that you know, the pressure on productivity is only going to increase. It's never going to decrease, right? And people are biggest impact to productivity. Uh, people productivity is actually not machines, it's actually people. Because we're human and we know that humans can be more effective, more impactful, more efficient when they are in a good, in a good state of mind. Uh, and there's a lot, a lot, a lot of data on this. And good states of mind are predicated on many, many things, but specifically in the workplace, do I have a role that's important in this company? Am I contributing? Am I appreciated? And am I doing something good? Basically, those are the four things. Do I have a role? Am I appreciated? Does my work count? And um, am I appreciated, right? When you have those four things, first of all, the tension between just drives down to zero because When you know your role and you get to participate and you're getting appreciated and you're doing good stuff, that means things are humming, right? And when I say things are humming, that means that people understand why they're there, they understand the work at hand, they understand what to do, and they know that they're dependent on each other and they're accountable to each other. Yeah, and interestingly, uh, just take the appreciation factor, that must mean different things to the different generations. Absolutely. Well, you know, I'm not sure it means different, it might mean different expressions of it, right? 
and different expectations of it. So uh, absolutely the millennial generation and the Gen Z um, generations have higher expectation of being appreciated than the Gen X and boomers. And I'm a boomer, you know, we were the wait my turn generation. There are so many of us and, the, and in the United States, the economy was bursting at the seams. So it just kept growing, growing, growing. And if you just waited your turn, you elevated if you had a half a brain. And I elevated faster because I was, more, I mean, I elevated relatively quickly in my career but everybody elevated. It wasn't even a question of elevation. Then uh, Gen X, which is very, again, the smaller generation, really we call it the sandwich generation because it's almost half the size of boomers, millennials, Gen Y, is, you know, these are the latchkey kids. These are the kids who had double income families who came home and their parents were both at work and had to be much more independent. Many, many more single children in this generation than um, in either generation on either side of them. And these kids didn't have a whole lot of appreciation in their lives. They had a lot of independence. They're like, yeah, I'm going to like do it. Don't mind asking me if I'm going to do it. I'm going to, of course I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Right. <laughs> and then you have the millennials who grew up with appreciation from their boomer parents and their Gen X parents. A lot of appreciation. Everybody wins soccer, participation, uh, particip participation trophies for everything. So the expectation of appreciation is different among the generations. What we find, though, is that everyone wants to be appreciated. And when you actually accommodate, somebody accommodate it, when you adjust your practices, your behaviors in the company, in your teams, to make sure that everyone understands that their work and their effort is appreciated, everybody benefits. Nobody's like, oh, that's okay. Everybody likes it. And it's a human condition, right? It's just what we grew up to expect versus what we need as human beings. And there's a lot of data on that. There's just tons of data. And in fact, teams that feel appreciated outperform teams that don't by up to 30%. Well, 30% on a budget, right down to the bottom line, right? That is just pure profit. That for me was really hard. Kelly, at the same time I was figuring all this out, I was like, oh, gosh, I'm I mean, I really took it personally and probably took it too personally that these people have left well, the company. Well, most business owners would. I mean, they just would. Yeah, probably. I hope, right? And I got a coach and I did a 360 and it came back that people didn't think I appreciated them. And I was like, I was crushed. Like, I'm the nicest person I know. What are you talking about? They're like, yeah, Lee, not so much. And so the first thing I had to learn was actually how to explicitly appreciate people, Right. And so my coach had me do this exercise of just saying, please and thank you, please, please, every day, all day long, please, please, can you please do this? Will you please do this? Oh, thank you so much for doing that kind of stuff, right? And I felt like such a tool. Oh my God, I was like, people are going to be on to me. And I did feel like such a tool, but then it got more natural. And you have to understand, I grew up in a house with, my father was a cardiac surgeon. And please and thank you were always implied in our yes. house. And that's what he said. Please and thank you are implied. Because if I go into the operating room, Lee, and I say, please give me the scalpel, someone might die. Right. So, I and I, it took me a long time to understand that, yeah, that's not normal, right? <laughs> So we do this please and thank you thing. And then, oh my gosh, things are so much easier. Oh my gosh, people are, we're, and we track our time in the company, right? And we saw that our non-billable time, we increase our utilization by something like four to 5% within a month of just me talking, doing please and thank yous. And again, we're a small organization, but then, then we, I rolled it out to the whole company and we have to make it a practice or you have to practice this thing. So it becomes a muscle. So on Tuesdays, we have a staff meeting. So for 12 weeks in a row, at the end of the staff meeting, I had everybody stand up and find three people and give them a genuine appreciation for their work, right? Or their presence in the office. 
and everyone sort of groaned yeah. at it, but the yeah. energy in the room was off the charts, right? And it, you can't be like, I appreciate your hair. It's so nice. No, it had to be appreciate that you showed up early today to help us get a, a fast start. I appreciate that you found that typo on my document and showed it to me because, man, I would have sucked if I hadn't seen it. I appreciate, you know, those kinds of things. 12 weeks in a row. And they start to look for those things that they would have just overlooked or taken it for granted before. Yeah. Yeah. And that changed everything. That changed everything. So when I th when you think about, there's very few things between the generations that everybody as a human don't need. It's a question of what the expectations are for behavior among the generations. That's really where the conflict comes in. Yeah, so appreciation is probably the biggest one. The second largest one is language, right? So language and understanding is another piece. And I, it mostly is around deadline. I'm just going to say that the deadline, next to appreciation, the deadline is the biggest um, productivity shock in a company that causes the most strife. Because one, people don't, you know, deadlines are, they are stress inducing regardless of who you are. You know, some people do better than other people on them. But if we're not specific and granular to the lowest common denominator, we can create a lot of confusion. Let me give you an example. If I say end of day to you, Kelly, what does that mean? It would be five o'clock, but probably slightly before that so that if you had any questions, there's time to address them. Yeah. Well, what time zone are you in? Central. So it would mean that you would understand it to mean by five mm -hmm. o'clock. Well, a millennial, end of day, their number in college and high school, in the last two years of high school, the number one deadline for college students and juniors and seniors in high school is 11.59.59 p.m. <laughs> in their time zone. Well, and technology so has you, made that possible too. Right. You can, you can upload right. But that's what that. But that's what it means now, right? To them, it, end of day meant 11.59.59. So I would say end of day. And it, the time would pass and nothing would show up. And then I'd wake up in the morning and there would be the thing at 11.59.59. I'm like, that doesn't work, right? And, I, and then I didn't understand that because my kids weren't old enough for me to understand what that meant. And so I sort of peeled the onion on that. I was like, let's just, okay, people. End of day means five o'clock, right? I'll just say end of day means five o'clock. So let's not, you know, so when you do that, let's just say end of day means five o'clock. So I tried that. Well, then it was what times, we have people all over the yes. country. And so- well, t five o'clock in what time zone, Lee? Right? So people would get it to five o'clock in their time zones. And so if you're on the West Coast doing something for five o'clock, that meant you missed the deadline for the East Coast people or the Central people because they were already off the day. Yeah. Right? So then you had to drive specificity even farther down. So everyone understood what the deadline was. And the deadline is Tuesday. What's today? Today is the 10th. Yes. Yeah. Today is Thursday, January 10th at 10 a.m. in the Pacific time zone. Now, that sounds, I mean, to some of us, it's like, why do you have to be that granular? We have to be that granular because end of day, anything that is a concept, not a specific, can mean something very different. Absolutely right. In different cultures, in different generations, and different time zones. So if you drive that specificity, you will you will eliminate 80% of your conflict. And it's not because people meant to be conflicted. It's not that people meant to be um, confusing. It's not that people meant to be oblique. It's just that our understanding was very different, True. right? Mm -hmm. um, and I can say like on the East Coast, so I, I split my time between San Francisco, Wisconsin now, and New York. And 
is very different business cultures in terms of when things start. Like in New York, people sort of roll in around 9.30. We work in a WeWork in New York and it, it's never busy until 9.30, mm-hmm. 10 o'clock, ever. In San Francisco, if you don't show up by eight o'clock, you're behind even further, right? And we're in the news business, so we better, and a lot of our people we have to talk to are on the West East Coast. So if you're not here by eight o'clock, you're behind. But there, 9.30, you're like, ooh, crack of the crack of dawn, right? So just understanding all those different things are super important. And it's not just about generation. It's about time zones, cultures, you know, if you're, if you're from the south, you're from the north, you're from the east, you're from the west, you're from, you know, somewhere else. Breaking down things that are not specific became the thing that was number two. And then the number three for productivity was this role thing. Everybody wants to matter. Right. One of the biggest things for everything, you know, everyone wants to matter. And one of the biggest challenges with working with millennials when I first started doing it was they're like, well, you know, I've done this before. I don't need to do this again. I'm like, well, you've done it, but you haven't mastered it. The one and done thing. Right. And there's we could talk for days about the impact of uh, no child left behind on our workforce. but We don't have that much time. So, you know, this one and done work for the test, not for understanding phenomena, which is well-documented, has had a tremendous impact in our workplaces. So really making sure that we set expectations at the beginning of a project. Don't just say, because I said so. It doesn't work. It really doesn't work. <laughs> Unless you're in a command and control system where someone might die, which is the only time you ever want to use command and control leadership. But in our work, we want to, before we even start projects, let's get everybody together. Here's what we're doing. Here's why we're doing it. And here's how everybody's going to work together to get it done. Does anybody have any ideas on how to improve that? And that's what we start. And that's what we started doing too. So the three things, appreciation, specificity, and then expectations around what are we doing? What's the team's goal? And what's my role? Because you, as long as you understand that your role matters, that the job cannot get done without your participation in it, then you're good. No matter how low down on the line yeah, you are. Yeah, there's ownership. Uh, they know they have a stake in it. It's all spelled out. Mm-hmm. Let's go back to something you were talking about quite a bit before. You were talking about the turnover. You had six within just a couple of months. The six people you hired, yeah. they were gone. Three months. Three, three months. months. Okay, within just three months, the six were gone. So we're talking about employee loyalty. And that's another wrap that the millennial mm-hmm. generation gets. There's no employee loyalty. Yep. You're not going to have the gold watches after you know mm-hmm. 25 or 50 yep. years with this generation. So what is the new definition of employee loyalty yeah. that leaders should be focusing on? A few things. Loyalty is not, I think the idea that you're loyal to somebody you stay forever is actually a misnomer. Loyalty is doing something for somebody that you don't have to do. It's not a, we've heard this term a few times in the last year or so. It's not a quid pro quo situation, <laughs> right? Loyalty is, um, Kelly, I'm out there in the world. I'm like, you know what? You should talk to my friend, Heather. She would be a great interview for you. I don't have any skin in that game, except that I know it'll help you. And I know it'll be good for Heather and I connect you, right? That's a loyal thing. But if I am paying you, that's not loyalty. That is a transaction. I pay you, you show up, right? You do the work, you do it well. If you don't do it well, I don't, I stop paying you. That's how, that is actually working relationship. That is not loyalty. Loyalty is doing something for somebody you do not have to do, right? What we want as business owners is people who work for us at any moment in time who leave us, because they all will, to be loyal to our organizations for their entire lives. And what I mean by that is they're out in the world 
and they're spreading good things about our organization so that if they see somebody who would benefit from being with us or they would benefit or that person would benefit from us, that they make the connection. If they see that we could hear something, here's something you could do. Oh my gosh, there's a partnership. Uh, you know what? We have this opportunity. I'm going to call Lee because I know that her organization will do it well. That's the loyal act. There's nothing, you're not expecting anything. You're not, uh, you're just doing it because you had a good experience. You have a good relationship and you're out there doing good things. Everybody who leaves you can help you or hurt you today. True. It's always been true, but it's really true today. So how do you help them help you, right? And then the, the, uh, the other part of that is that everyone's going to leave. It is not rocket science to figure out that when you hire someone, they're going to leave, right? That you know they're going to leave. The only person that has to stay is me, right? So I actually say this to my employees when they first start. I said, I, in the first week when I meet with them, it's like, thank you for coming. I'm so excited that you're here because we are, right? We don't just hire anybody. And I know you're going to leave the company. I hope it's in a long time. And that the most important thing to, for me as the owner and CEO of this company is that you feel that your time at Double Forte was valuable to you, that you keep it on your resume and that you always feel good about the experience and the learning and the expertise that you got during your time here. And I say that in the first week and they all sort of look at me and it's not, you know, if you Google me on this topic, I talk about it a lot. I've written a book about it, right? But they're like, Lee, I just got here. Why are you talking about me leaving? I said, you know, I want to talk about it now so you understand how we run, how we run things here. We run things knowing that we're not going to be able to, we probably won't be able to hold you. We're a small company. We may not be able to hold you for your whole career. We want to be valuable to you for your whole career. Yeah. Right? Totally different twist on loyalty. Just yeah. Totally different thing. Because... I started this company, Kelly, PR company, before Twitter existed. So we have gone through, forget the business model thing on just who works for us and how do we make money, right? But what we do for a living to fulfill the same purpose has changed four or five times since I started the company. So how we do things today is not going to be how we do things in three years. If people don't keep learning, then they're not going to be valuable in the company and they're going to have to go somewhere else. And we know, and millennials and Gen Z know that a company, they should not count on a company to keep them. Their parents are telling them, particularly the parents who lost their jobs in 2008, 2000, 2010, right? Don't count on a company to keep you. There are no more gold watches, right. right? So you make sure that you don't get stale. Like if, you st if you're young and you stay in a job for eight years, you're going to be stale. Don't stay for eight years. Be I, I, I haven't been able to work because I stayed at a company for so long. No one will hire me, right? And basically that was the huge message that the millennial generation got after 2010, right? Their parents are telling them don't do what we did, which was stick. And they also are graduating knowing that whatever they do, is going to change dramatically in two or three years because of technology, oh, yeah. because of the changing economy. So that, um, and they're and they're going to have to work for much longer. And the prospect of doing one thing for their lives is terrifying, right? And so they they anticipate having four to five careers, not jobs, not functions, but careers. So if we know this, which we do then how as business owners and leaders do we adjust how we run our businesses so that we can keep those people who already know they want to leave when they join us longer in our organizations, number one, 
more valuable in our organizations, number two, and then, and then valuable to the organization after they leave to go pursue their own goals. Yeah, totally, totally right? different way of looking at totally different way of thinking about it and it's just more practical and that's i mean it's i'm a very practical person if it doesn't work i change right so and for my first book i was a lot of people had me i did so much talking and so many workshops and i still do these workshops all over the country invariably there was somebody in the audience who would say would raise their hand and say you know what i'm i don't believe this you don't believe you lee invariably and you know i spend so much time on these young people and then they leave and they're just dead to me they're, i mean why am i spending so much time training these people when they're just going to leave they're dead to me and i was like no <laughs> right because the third whatever number i'm on here is when you say people are dead to you you are you are having your potential job applicant pool for the rest of your career because people are gonna leave. I mean, you, there's nothing you can do, right? And ultimately, if you bring people back, and the boomerang principle is, this is what it, that my second book is called The Boomerang Principle. The principle is those organizations that encourage people to return as full-time employees to the companies that they've left have a, a strategic advantage over those that do not encourage. Mm -hmm. Because when someone returns to you, they return more valuable than when they left. Oh, definitely. They've gone out into the broader world, gained more experience, right. more relationship. But until two years ago, over 50% of companies in this country had policies against rehiring. Really? Really. It's just not, you know, it's not how I expected to run. I thought I was going to be done. I'm a boomer. We all thought we were going to be finished at 50 on a beach somewhere. Yeah, that came and right. went. Um and this is not how, you know, this was not the expectation. People thought there would be careers forever. The practicality of it is my books are all about the, you know, here's reality. Here's what we've done here at Double Forte. Here's how you can take it into the world. Because generations are different. We are all going to be working longer. There's going to be another generation behind, you know, Z. I don't know what we're going to call them. And A, double A, I don't know. And um, you know, you're a PR firm. You can help shape what they're going to be called. We'll figure that out, right? We'll figure that out. And it, it all comes down to whatever, seriously, whatever letter I'm on, I'm sorry, I've lost track, is, you know, in the idea of AI and automation and all this machine learning, all this kind of stuff, right? It's still not going to, It's you know, a lot of things are going to be, uh, a lot of job functions today are going to be uh, replaced by technology. That's not going to mean that there aren't going to be jobs. It's just going to mean they're going to be very different jobs, right, than there are today. But we're all going to be looking, every leader, every manager, every CEO is going to be looking for that top 25% employee. All of us. And those top 25% employees can say where they want to be. They don't have to, you know, it's going to, it's going, the top 25%, choose. no matter what the economy is, can pick and choose. And so if we're not creating organizations that attract those people to stay and what, and what attracts those people, what attracts those people is being around other people who are high performing like they are being able to contribute, being valued, right? Oh, voila. And having an important role in the company. Oh, isn't that what I just said about yeah. millennials, yeah. right? So, you know, we have to be thinking about the future and how many things are going to change in our companies that we have no control over. Um, but we do have control. What we can control is how we behave. And what my, my thesis is, is that we have to start behaving in ways that help people feel great about coming to work.
no matter how old they are. And there are some simple things we can do that those change behaviors make all the difference in the world. Yeah, and that's quite a departure from some older people in the workforce who is like, you get what you know you get what you deserve you have to wait and earn it as opposed to making mm-hmm. people feel good right now and being able to contribute right i mean it is for some people that is quite an adjustment to make well i think too it's you have to be explicit about expectations because people they do i mean one of the biggest complaints about millennials was like this person just showed up in my office and they were i'm the ceo and like joe showed up and said hey brian how you doing <laughs> who is this guy right because they've had access you know, millennials and Gen Z have had more access through their phones to people, organizations, politicians, and information than Gen X and Boomer, right, than any of us have had. And their expectation is that construct, that concept, the construct of access is the same in the workforce that it is in their, in their real lives. Well, that couldn't be farther from the yeah. truth. But if you don't tell people that it's different, they don't know. Right. We have to stop using the word should. Well, they should know. Well, they don't. And the other thing that is also true, sorry, one more thing, Kelly, is that we're going to have more and more people in your organizations who are the first generation of white collar workers, the first generation of so um, college graduates who do not have the, who did not grow up with the expectations of this kind of work, who did not grow up with the construct of work hours like ours, right? That did not grow up this way. So they do not have the benefit of culture there. And uh, we have a, a few in my office today, and it's, and we've had to do other adjustments for that, which will maybe be my third book about that, because that's going to be, it used to be that a high school, a high school diploma was the lowest common denominator. The BA is now the lowest common denominator. Lee, we have covered so much today. <laughs> really, we have. And there's so much more in your book, so. So for those who are interested in learning more, where can they, one, get a copy of your books, and two, how can they get in touch with you if they want to talk further about this? So my books are on all IndieBound, Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble. They're in Barnes & Noble stores and some independent stores. Or you can go to my website, www.leecarraher.com, L-E-E-C-A-R-A-H-E-R.com, and my book, you can reach, go through my website to get to the books. You can reach me on the website as well. There's a click to email me. And um, you can follow me on Twitter at, at Lee Carraher or LinkedIn at Lee Carraher as well. And I blog on these topics all the yeah, time. Yeah, and we'll have all of that information, all those links on our website, on the show notes as well to for this podcast. So if you don't have a pencil right now, uh, don't worry about taking all those down. Lee, again, thank you so much for joining us. Much success. I'm eager to hear if you do get that third book out. But uh, again, <laughs> Lee Carraher, Millennials and Management, and then our second book, The Boomerang Principle. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks so much, Kelly. And I'm your host, Kelly Scanlon. Thanks for joining us today. Be sure to visit the Talking Business Now website at talkingbusinessnow.com for access to all my podcasts and to sign up for the weekly Talking Business Now newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.